Quick disclaimer, there are a few adult themes this week. Nothing too graphic, but please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week, on Myths and Legends, we're back in the folklore of India, where we'll see that sometimes being a good parent means letting your children go their own way, alone and hungry in a jungle full of dangerous animals. The creature this week is a good reason to take a cat with you to the bathroom. This is Myths and Legends, episode 319, Tricks and Illusions. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, it's a story of fate from southern India. We'll jump in with a family of three, sitting down to breakfast. A breakfast that might be an illusion. It it isn't, though. It's a real breakfast. Ugh, pleasure, am I right? The young man said to his parents over breakfast. The parents exhaled. It was too early for this conversation. If you don't want your breakfast, you don't have to eat it. You're 16, you're basically an adult. We have to work though. Wish we could all stay home and be tutored in Sanskrit, but you know, we have to eat, the mom said, before returning to our meal. It's all an illusion, you know? Subramanya, the kid, said, sitting back and crossing his arms. The parents knew better than to engage at this point. They thought, hoped, all these philosophical musings were a phase, but they just kept going. Is the world an illusion? Maybe. Are all our actions already determined by a god, fate, or a deterministic universe? Probably. Does that functionally change life at all for anyone, ever? No, not that there wasn't any point in talking about it, but it was getting a little annoying that their kid wanted to talk about it constantly. I just don't think I can keep living like this, the kid said. The parents nodded, didn't think he could keep living a life of opportunity and plenty, just like they had worked so hard to give him. Exactly! It's the worst! How am I ever going to be a great sage if I have all this stuff? Great sage? You mean like those people that live out there in the forest and caves or whatever? Seriously? He wanted to be like them? It was the first time that the parents really got the idea that their kid might not have been on a path that they understood. Like he wanted to throw away everything they had done for him. The kid reclined. Yeah. Can you imagine living simply in peace and happiness? The parents said yes. They could imagine living in the woods. They had been camping and there was a reason they lived in a house with a fireplace, a bed, surrounded by a community that supported and provided for each other through trade and commerce, and most importantly, no tigers. Supermania said that they just didn't understand. It might be difficult for them to grasp, given that he had so much more education than them, but they were living in an unreality. The parents took a deep breath. Don't lose it. They told themselves the kid was obviously weaponizing the education they paid for it against them because he didn't understand how the world worked. And it was their responsibility to help him understand how the world worked. You know what? The father said, setting down his food. How about this? How about 
you do that. You go off into the forest seeking that real life. You'll spend all of a day, but two tops out there. And when you're tired of animals, the heat, the bugs, and just straight up miserableness of the woods, you come back and apologize to your mother and me. The kid said, fine. Great, the dad said. Supermania rose, packed his things, and left while his parents were at work. That night, the parents stayed up, sitting out in front of their house, waiting for the inevitable return of their son. They thought he would start back as soon as darkness fell. Then by midnight, by dawn, they knew, assuredly, he would be back by mid-morning. That was it. By day three, they began to worry. He still hadn't returned. Five days, and the parents asked around in the village. Two weeks, and they sought news from any traveler that came by. They feared the worst. Not that he had been eaten by a tiger, though that was definitely up there. They feared that he would return as a great sage and be completely insufferable. They feared that he was right. Oh my gosh, he was so wrong, Subramanya thought as he tumbled down yet another ravine. His blood twisted like smoke in the river when he finally rose. He looked at his forearm. Ugh, okay, just a scratch. Went with all the others he had. And there were others. He tried to be all aesthetic, laying on an expanse of cleared out dirt for his first night. But dirt? Dirt was uncomfortable. He knew it wasn't monk-like to want the comfort of dried leaves, but he needed to do something. He slept for an hour before waking up with centipedes crawling up his spine, sending him shrieking into the woods. After he outran his first tiger that night, he decided that he had it. His parents were right. Real or no, he had some growing to do in his philosophical austerity because nature was the worst. He turned around to go home. And after hiking four days on his way out of the forest when it only took half a day to come in, he thought... Maybe he was going the wrong way. The kid was in deep, because he not only didn't see villages or roads, but even the footpaths occasional travelers cut through even the most secluded forests eluded him. He was in forests that, so far, had remained untrodden by human feet. Surrounded by wild animals and starving, the kid thought that, if this was all an illusion, why did it hurt so much? He traveled like this for several more days until, off in the distance, he spotted an abandoned, dilapidated hut. Just the worst type of place that was obviously left in this desolate, forsaken region. Still, it was a hut. It had a door, or most of one. He could get a good night's sleep and maybe starve to death in peace. He pushed open the door, laid down on the floor, and went to sleep. And the man who lived there looked at the kid. Uh, hi? Who are you? Hello? He shrugged. He would just wait for the kid to wake up. How long is he going to sleep on our floor? Supermania heard a woman's voice. I don't know. He obviously needs it, the old man said. He's not going to, like, 
murder us. Is he? The woman asked. I hope not, the man said. I'm I'm not going to murder you, Subramanya said, sitting up. The elderly couple breathed. Whew, I mean, lowest bar ever for hospitality, but they were glad they cleared it. Subramanya looked around the grass hut. It was actually kind of cozy. Nice, even. What brings you so far out into the wilderness? The elderly man asked the boy, after handing him a clay cup of water. Well, I left home to search for a sage, so I could obtain mastery over the higher branches of philosophy. Subramanya took a sip, and before he could say, but that was a terrible idea, so I'm trying to find my way home and not die. The elderly man clapped and embraced Subramanya. What a wonderful, wonderful sight that made up the couple's meals in the forest while he inquired about the man's story. So in certain types of Hinduism, there are four stages to life. And this is a very broad paraphrase. So please forgive me if I get anything wrong, but it is relevant to the story. The first was the student phase until about the age of 25. It focuses on education, self-discipline, and learning to live a life of Dharma. The second phase was the household life, where a person gets married, has children, makes money, supports others, and it's full of work, emotions, attachments, etc. That lasts until about 48. Between 48 and 72, it's the Vanaprastha stage, or retired life, where people hand off responsibilities to the next generation and gradually withdraw from the world. It's a transitory phase where you're supposed to care less about the things that mattered in the previous phase, i.e. wealth, security, desires, etc., and more about spiritual liberation. After 72, there's the renounced life. It's a renunciation of material desires, and it's a state of detachment or disinterest from your material life. Even though I gave ages, those apparently aren't hard and fast rules, and anyone can just skip to the end and renounce the world after completing their initial education. Liberation from desires and self-realization is apparently the end goal no matter what. Anyway, the man and his wife are in the third stage, the transitory retirement phase. The word vanaprastha apparently means retiring into the forest, and this couple is very literally doing just that. They gave up their property and went together into the forest. The man was so grateful to have found Subramanya, and Subramanya to have found him, not only because he wouldn't die of starvation out there in the forest, but because the elderly man could teach him philosophy and the supreme knowledge from everything the elderly man had learned throughout his life. So, for the next five years, Subramanya lived in the hut. He shared in the duties of their daily work, slept on the other side of the hut, and probably gave the married couple privacy from time to time, because, well, they became pregnant. Yes. Five years later, the husband and wife were pregnant with a child. And yeah, I was under the impression that they were both about the same age, both around their 60s, maybe pushing 70, and as such, that would be pretty unlikely. I guess not, though. Either it was a miraculous late-life conception, or she was much younger than him. But regardless, she became pregnant. As you do when your spouse is eight months pregnant and you live in the woods, the husband decided that now would be the perfect time to go visit the source of a particular sacred river. Look, I am not judging. Okay, I'm judging a little. He wants to step back into the previous phase when it's fun to do so, but when she's eight months along, oh, sorry, babe, we're doing the renunciation thing and I have to go look at a river. 
I'm being a little facetious. It wasn't just looking at a river. It was likely visiting all the shrines and temples and sacred sites on the way. And it was important to where he was on his religious journey. I guess more important than the birth of his child. Okay, it was a different time and I'll stop with the judging. Pretty much as soon as he left, the wife went into labor. The young man's job was simple. On paper? In actuality, it was complicated and terrifying. Help her give birth in the woods, completely separate from medical care. He sat by her pallet, and she agonized in the protracted labor, and... Subramanian narrowed his eyes. Wait a second. Who was that guy? Subramanian and the wife had a visitor. A man was walking up to their hut. And it wasn't some rando wanderer, meekly approaching, seeking some food or lodging. And it wasn't like Subramanya when he was starving or fleeing. This guy walked with purpose directly to the door. Subramanya rose and met him there. It was his job to protect the mother and the baby. A job given to him by the baby's father, who apparently couldn't be bothered. Subramanya, though, took the family seriously. No one would pass. The stranger, the man didn't pay him any mind whatsoever. He didn't even make eye contact, he just kept walking and plowed straight into Subramanya. What the? The man said, looking at the kid for the first time. He tried again, and again, he ran into Subramanya. Why do you look surprised? What do you want in there? A woman's giving birth, Subramanya declared, not moving. Wait, you, you can see me? The stranger studied the kid. Yes. And hear me? The stranger screamed. Also, yes, stop yelling. Subramanya yelled, inadvertently matching the panicked energy. Wild, the stranger said, feeling the face and hair of the kid. Who are you? The kid swatted the man's hands away. The man smiled. Oh, really? This must be a good disguise. Yeah, He was Brahma. Brahma. A creator god in Hinduism, Subramanya said. He immediately tied his upper cloth around his hips as a mark of respect, walked around the being thrice, and dropped down before Brahma's feet. It wasn't every day you got to meet your maker in a positive, non-deadly way. Inside, the very soon-to-be mother screamed. Brahma's eyes widened. Oh, he needed to get in there. Why? Subramanya looked up as Brahma tried to walk past him, bowing. Well, as you probably know, I have this nail that I use to write on the heads of children. That, well, okay, that sounds bad. It's in a metaphorical sense, like writing their destiny. But I also place an actual nail on their forehead and it writes stuff, so who knows? Subramanya rose. What does it write? Hey, I don't even know what it's going to write or why. But that destiny is binding. He was still trying to get around the 20-something. Can you tell me what it writes? On that baby in there? Subramanya asked, still not getting out of the way. Brahma looked forward. Okay, here's the deal. Get out of the way, and he would tell the kid what the iron nail wrote. Subramanya and Brahma ran to the mother's aid. We'll see what the future holds for the first child, but that will be right after this. Please save. So she didn't see you at all. 
Subramanya shook his head. Wait, wait, why can I? Well, you're a serious student of the Dharma, who's been studying for years, Brahma said. He bit his lip. Look, what the nail wrote? It wasn't good, sorry. He would tell Subramanya, but the kid could never tell anyone. Of course, Subramanya said, nodding. But really, tell anyone and I will split your head into a thousand pieces, Brahma in the original story said. Really, I, I am not joking, he continued. There'll be exactly 1,000 equal-sized pieces. It's really impressive, he didn't say. That's me adding that on. Subramanya said he wasn't going to say anything anyway. He literally devoted his life to following the gods. Now, what did the nail write? Brahma sighed. The kid, the boy, he would have a difficult life. A buffalo and a sack of rice. That would be his livelihood all life long. Brahma didn't know if it was because he didn't have any good acts from his previous life, or if it's the result of some sin that he'll have to undergo so many miseries. Uh, you hate to see it, but that's fate. Supermanya was incensed. Here was Brahma, the supreme holiness, saying the son of a sage, the boy who would be like a brother to Subramanya, would have the difficult life of a sinner? Brahma shrugged, look, he may be supreme and all that, but there are consequences to life. Every life. The act of a life must be answered for in the next one. And this guy, whew, it was a doozy. Brahma said he was sorry. Really though, Subramanya couldn't say a thing or else his head would split into a thousand pieces. Can't stress that enough. Thousand pieces, equal size, maybe weight too. He'd been thinking of a way to buffer it with hair. Subramanya said, okay, don't worry, he wouldn't tell anyone. The old sage returned and he was delighted to meet his son named Kapali and see that both the child and mother survived because not only was this time challenging for childbirth and infant mortality, but once again, they lived in the woods. A couple things happened over the next few years. Subramanya continued learning under the sage while the child grew up in the forest. When the wife became pregnant again, the sage hired a woman from the villages to help her out, and, oh, time to go on another pilgrimage. Crazy how that always seems to overlap with giving birth in this hut. So weird. All right, he was out. And while he was, and while the wife was in the process of giving birth, Subramanya waited by the door. Seriously, Brahma asked, nail in hand, when Subramanya wouldn't let him pass. Will you tell me again this time? Brahma nodded. Yes, yes, he would. Thousand pieces, though, remember? Subramanya remembered that line being beaten thoroughly to death. Yes, he accepted. Ooh, yee. This one is even worse, Brahma said a few minutes later, tucking the nail into his pack. Not good. I'm so sorry. She's going to spend her adult life as a frivolous woman. The young man, Subramanya, shook his head. Frivolous? Was that a code for something? Brahma winced. Uh, yeah, this was translated during the 1800s. So, you know, they kind of toned down some stuff. Let's just say it meant that she was going to be a courtesan. Subramanya shrugged, not so bad. For a daughter of a forest sage to give advice to the king, that's kind of a step up. Brahma looked at the young man, then, oh, nodded. 
courtier. He was thinking courtier. No, no, no. He whispered into the young man's ear. Oh, well, I mean, if that's the life she chooses, it's not. Brahma interrupted. The nail was unfortunately very clear about that. She would be miserable. He could see Subramanya getting sad for the kids and angry at Brahma. Look, I'm just telling you what the nail wrote, Brahma said. Could be sins from past life. Could be because their dad did stuff way out of order and he's raising his children in the forest when he should be withdrawing from the world. Who's to say? But you know who shouldn't say? And by say, I mean say anything about these kids' fates? Oh my gosh, I know, Subramanya said and left. Subramanya thought that he would be able to do it. He thought he would be able to manage, but knowing that these kids had nothing but toil ahead of them, it made living there difficult. At his 10-year anniversary of coming to live with the couple, a couple he viewed as parents, despite having two loving parents who probably thought he had been eaten by a tiger, Subramanya couldn't bear to stay there. Plus, the longer he stayed, the more he wanted to tell these kids their fates, so they could avoid them. But he was a fatalist. He knew that there was no avoiding your fate, and that, by doing so, you might be the one to cause it to arrive. So he begged his sage dad the ability to leave, to go on a pilgrimage. The sage cocked his head. Pilgrimage? Wait, wait. Was somebody pregnant? Subramanya said, what? No, it just felt like the right time to go. The old sage smiled. He, he agreed. Subramanya had learned everything he had to teach. Subramanya was now like one of his own children. And like his own children, he only wanted the best for his student. Subramanya swallowed hard, thanked his teacher, and left the next morning for the Himalayas. At age 27, Subramanya made it to the Himalayas and found teacher after teacher, sage after sage. He didn't stay in one place too long, and he didn't need to. He was like a sponge for knowledge for philosophy, and absorbed everything. At 37, he felt like he was nearly there. At 47, he knew he was. He came down from the mountains. It had been a long time, and he wanted to visit his first teachers, the couple who lived by the river, the people who had set him on this path. But the shack where they lived, where he had lived for a decade of his life, was nothing more than a pile of sticks and leaves. It had long since collapsed, having no one there to tend to it. The reason why there were no people there to maintain things was because they now rested out by the river. The Lord of Death, the story says, came for the elderly couple. Subramanya sat for a long time with his friends and teachers, the two peaceful graves by the flowing Tungahabra River, before rising to his feet. He looked to his former home and sighed. Well, no place to sleep here. He remembered a village not a half a day's walk, and he could probably make it before dark. He found his walking stick and continued on down the road. (music) 
We'll meet the first child of the sages and see how he's doing, but that will, once again, be right after this. No, 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 get up, get up, the worker said to the buffalo. Subramanya slowed and saw the man yanking the bridle of what looked like a dead buffalo. Was everything okay? The man said he needed this buffalo. He really needed this buffalo. All he had for his entire family was this buffalo and a bag of rice. If he lost this, Subramanya's eyes widened as the man kept explaining his terrible, terrible life. But both men breathed when the buffalo, who was very sleepy, finally moved. They both struggled, and Subramanya helped the man get the buffalo back to his house. And the man, seeing that such a great sage lacked a place to lay his head, invited Subramanya in. There, he met the man's family. The man was now 25. He was married, and he had two kids. And Subramanya could see his master's face in the man's. He learned that the son of a great sage was a laborer who minded a buffalo. With the money he earned, he was able to afford a single bag of rice to feed his family. It worked out perfectly, horribly perfectly. He never had enough to save. Misfortune came and took whatever money he had left when rice was cheap, or he came into more money than he expected. But he always had enough for rice. They clung to life with just enough food to not starve. A buffalo and a bag of rice, just like the nail had written on his head when he was a child. Hi, Kapali, Subramanya smiled. The laborer furrowed his brow. How did the stranger know his name? Subramanya smiled. That didn't concern him. He could see, though, that the man had some troubles. Oh, yeah, you think? Kapali said. He sighed. He just, he didn't know how to get out of it. Subramanya, though, had been thinking about this question for years. How indeed, how do you escape fate? In all of his learnings from all of his masters, though, he kept running up against one inescapable conclusion. You don't. I can help you, Subramanya said. Kapali nodded, please. Subramanya said it was easy. Kapali needed to go to the market when he got up the following morning, taking his buffalo and his bag of rice with him, and he needed to sell them. Kapali furrowed his brow. Sorry, that didn't make sense. The half a bag of rice that he had left was worth more to him than anyone could pay. It meant not starving. The buffalo was how he made money to get the rice. Subramanya kept going. With the money he made from selling his buffalo and rice, he would buy up all sorts of food for a massive feast. They needed to eat up every bit of it. That was the necessary part. Share it with the neighbors and the priests if they needed to. It had to be gone tomorrow. Kapali shook his head. That was, how would they have enough to feed their children in the days to come or years to come? Like, no offense, but maybe a sage who has forsaken the things of this world wasn't the best financial advisor. Kapali had loved his father. He did. But he couldn't help but think that being raised in the forest away from society and remaining completely uneducated as to material wealth might have led to his current situation. 
You dare question the wisdom of a great sage. Supermanya put on his Gandalf voice and seemed to grow taller. Kapali's wife stepped forward. She said to her husband that his parents had been sages, right? Kapali nodded, yeah. And here's another one, telling us to trust in his wisdom. I say we do it. This man's holiness would not advise us to our ruin, she said, putting her arm around her husband. Supermangi grinned. Kapali had a wise wife. The next day, Kapali listened to the great sage and went to the market early. He wasn't able to get a lot for his buffalo and rice, but it was more money than he had held in his lifetime. He followed the instructions, bought food for the feast, and was able to share the leftovers with 50 priests. It was a great day. But Kapali's entire adult life had been spent worrying about tomorrow. And despite the most magnificent, extravagant day he had been able to remember, despite his children being able to sleep because they weren't going to bed with empty stomachs for a change, he was still worried. What would happen tomorrow? He worried so much that he didn't sleep, unlike Subramanya, who snored from the main room. Kapali rose and paced the house, but when his wife politely asked him, with yelling, to stop waking her up and nearly waking the kids up, he walked around outside. He walked to the buffalo's stall, where he would go each morning. The door flapped in the breeze of the small hours. He instinctively grabbed some hay and tossed it in the stall. The buffalo bellowed in thanks, and Kapali rubbed his snout, before turning back around and... Wait, what? It didn't make any sense. Kapali's only guess was that a buffalo had wandered into his stall. Even after the sun rose, and Kapali asked any of the neighbors if they were missing a buffalo, after he inspected the animal fully for any identifiers, and asked the authorities if they knew anyone looking for a buffalo, there was only one conclusion. Finders keepers, bud. It was all good. The authorities said it wasn't missing from anywhere. He should see it as a sign of his own good fortune. He was scratching his head as he walked through the door, and if the buffalo was a strange, fortuitous happening, the bag of rice defied explanation. Kapali's wife thought he bought it, Kapali thought his wife bought it, and they both thought Subramanya bought it, but no one would admit to buying it. Subramanya stood, smiling and self-satisfied for reasons he evidently wouldn't share, and he told Kapali the man needed to get to the market if he was to sell the rice and buffalo and get to cooking. Kapali was going to say he would do no such thing. He had his buffalo and rice back. He wouldn't tempt fate. But his wife stepped in front of him when she could see his outrage brewing. Absolutely, great sage. First thing, Supermanya nodded at the couple. Very good. And that's what they needed to do. Every day, sell whatever came into their possession and use the money to feed their family. Anything else should be shared with the neighbors and the priests of the city. Take nothing from one day to the next, but have faith that what they would need would be there when they need it. It didn't make any sense to the couple, but they trusted the man. After all, he was a great sage. Subramanya clapped his hands. Now, where does your sister live? Kalyani answered her door, but that was not before informing the visitor, again and again, that she did not take visitors until after nightfall. Kalyani looked him up and down when she answered. Oh, a sage. Well, first time for everything. Come on in. He stopped her. He wasn't here about that. No. In fact, well, 
he was something of an older brother to her. He explained their connection, and she broke down, sobbing. She hugged him. She said it's one thing to do this type of work if you wanted to. If you don't, well, she hated it. But after her parents died, both she and her brother had a difficult time. She moved far away from him. And this, this was all she could do. She was eking out a living, but barely that. Misfortune would come and take away everything if she amassed anything beyond her daily needs. She feared the judgment in the eyes of the sage and said she she would find something else somehow. Somehow she would stop doing it. Oh, no, absolutely not. Don't let me stop you. If anything, you need to keep doing it. Subramanya shrugged. The woman, Kalyani, said, Really? That didn't sound like something a sage would say. Subramanya said he was not judging. In fact, if she wanted his advice, as a sage, she wasn't charging enough. The woman blinked. Uh, okay. Subramanya said for one night, she should lock her door and only open it for someone who had a bag of pearls. Kalyani laughed, then paused. Wait, was he serious? Oh, uh, well, maybe he didn't understand the economics of the situation, but her clients were travelers and guys who snuck away from the nearby villages. It, no one had a bag of pearls. Subramanya asked her to please trust him. He was a wise sage, after all. It was one night. If it didn't work out, there you go. If it did, it would change everything. Kalyani could see how determined and earnest he was. She agreed. Okay, for one night. Subramanya grinned. One night. Most of that night, Subramanya listened from a nearby inn to most of Kalyani's usual clients' gripe that they were never coming back. That was insane. A bag of pearls? Who has a bag of pearls? They even offered to pay double, triple their usual rate, but Kalyani refused to open the door. Then, as the sky began to turn purple, Subramanya saw him, a young man, walking toward the house with a bag full of pearls. Subramanya smiled. It was the same deal. She was to take the pearls to market, sell them, and, with the money, feed herself and anyone else she could find. All the leftover money was to be given to charities, take nothing from one day to the next. The following night, do the same, and the day after, she should sell everything and so on. He waited around to see if she got it, and another day and another feast later, Subramanya was able to leave town, trailed by the many thanks and praises of Kalyani. For many years, Subramanya resumed his travels and his pilgrimages, this time in peace, having saved his former teacher's children. Then, one night, while sleeping out under the stars in a holy place, he heard a grunting. Come on, the man said, leading the buffalo, the bag of rice on his head, and sack of pearls swinging at his side. Hello there. Subramanya sat up as the stranger walked by his camp. 
The stranger looked at him and then did a double take. Oh, it was a sage. Of course the man could see him and wait a second. The man did a triple take, turning and pointing. You, you're the guy, the man screamed. I'm sorry, do I know you? Subramanya cocked his head. The stranger sneered. Do I know you? Do I know? The nerve. The stranger snapped his finger and he took the image of the man Subramanya had seen all those years ago at the births of Kalyani and Kapali. Oh, wait. Brahma? Subramanya looked confused. What are you doing out here with a bag of rice, a buffalo, and a sack of pearls? Brahma shook his head like he didn't know. Subramanya smiled. Every night, every night I have to run a buffalo and a bag of rice to Kapali, and I have to create a person and take Kalyani this sack of pearls. The villages aren't close. It has been like this for years. I can't do a thing at night because I have to work to find a buffalo, rice, and pearls. It's terrible. And worst of all, he dropped the bag of rice to his shoulders and revealed a head that shined in the moonlight. The weight of the rice over the years had worn him bald. Bald! Please, please tell them to stop. It was so much better when they were barely eking out a living, Brahma said. (laughs) Not better for them. Subramanya replied that the kids, well, it seemed that the kids had conquered their fate. Brahma took a deep breath. Well, if they couldn't be persuaded to relent, that gave him no other choice. He waved his hands a bit. Done. Subramanya asked what was done. Brahma replied their fate. It was erased from their foreheads. He didn't, well, not really erased, because you can't really erase your fate, but they had eternal felicity now, as the story says, and it overruled their fate. Their future now was effectively unwritten. He wouldn't help them, but they wouldn't be bound to the failings of their past lives. Brahma let the buffalo go, scattered the pearls, and left the rice for Subramanya, who ate a bit himself, before taking it to the next village to feed whoever needed it the following morning. We don't know what happened to the three children of the sages in the forest, but we do know that their futures were wide open because they did what no one in the history of folklore had been able to do. They beat fate. Next week on the podcast, it's the Popo Vol, for real this time. I know I teased it like a year ago, but I'm finally happy with where the episode ended up. It's a two-parter, and it is so much fun. And then after that, it's back to the Vikings. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a toilet timer, a five-minute sand timer that's 15 times the price of a normal timer because it looks like a guy pooping, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that, thankfully, don't look like a guy pooping. So we're passing the savings on to you check out mythpodcast.com slash membership or find us in Apple Podcasts to subscribe there. The creature this time is the Mineki Niko from Japan. Now, I know you've seen the lucky cat. The little bobtail cat with one paw up. They're like little statues and figurines and stuff. Here in Cincinnati, we apparently have a lucky cat museum. Yes, be jealous. Well, they have an origin. Origins, actually. 
I guess in Japan in the Middle Ages, cats had an easier time than they did in Europe. Mostly. They still sometimes got their heads cut off, but we'll get to that. The first origin of the lucky cat is from the 17th century, where a monk lived at a temple with his pet cat. One day, a lord, a samurai, came by, but he didn't quite make it to the shelter in the temple and, to protect himself from the lightning storm, hid under a tree. As he was standing there, he noticed something in the doorway. The cat. The cat was waving at him? It had a paw up and was beckoning him inside the temple. And, I mean, because cats always get what they want, the samurai listened. When he was halfway to the temple, lightning struck the tree. Lightning that would have killed him had he remained underneath it. He supported that temple after that. And when the bobtail cat died of old age, he made the first lucky cat statue to commemorate the feline that saved his life. The other origin is the cat of a courtesan. She had a tortoiseshell cat she loved, and it loved her. We did an episode on clingy Japanese cats not too long ago, and it was the same deal. The brothel owner got suspicious of the cat that was always with one of the women. Then, one day, the cat was scratching at the woman's dress as she was trying to make her way to the bathroom, and the brothel owner very reasonably pulled out his sword and cut off the cat's head. With the cat's last bit of consciousness, with its head flying through the air, it found the predator it had been trying to warn the woman about. The large, venomous snake lying in wait next to the toilet. The woman was mad at the brothel owner, and to help the situation, the owner built a statue of the hero cat, which was not only so good, it comforted the woman and made up for the cat, but everyone wanted a copy. And thus, the lucky cat statue was born. So yes, the takeaway here is that cats are good and cool. Please stop writing me emails saying that I was wrong about cats in the older episodes. I know I was wrong about cats. We have three of them now, and I love them. But I do think that out of our three, only one of them would be nice enough to beckon me over and keep me from getting struck by lightning. And, and another one would attack a serpent and save my life. Not because Pizza actually cares about me, Carissa's his favorite, but because I think he would just find it fun to fight a snake. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we use in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.